everyone. I'm here today with Branislav Jankic, and he's joining us from Warsaw, Poland. And I'm going to start off by reading his artist statement that you can find on his website, and I'll put a link to his website in the podcast description. And I really, really think it's a wonderfully intricate and deep artist statement, so I hope we can unpack it a lot in this interview. So it says, my work in, interrogates the experience of subordination, and I make films, sculptures, and performances that explore the possibility of redemption and survival. In particular, my interest is in the history of persons made to be submissive or those who labor under oppressive institutions or seemingly self-destructive patterns. This derives from aspects of my personal history as a survivor of war, a child of parental addiction, and as a refugee of... Um, from the former Yugoslavia. This experience of displacement and conflict has grounded my investigations into questions of addiction, of fetishism, and of devotion. Throughout, I sometimes look at the ways in which masochism transforms into fulfillment an experience that some would dismiss as only pain. And I see in this alchemy, a guide to understanding how people come to survive subordination and pain, this is not to erase that pain, but rather to figure out how it can be endured. And I was hoping to start out the interview by you telling us a little bit more about your background, where you grew up, what was going on in the country, what was happening with your family, and how did it lead you to the work that you do today? Okay, thank you for reading it so nicely. Um, uh, so I, I grew up in former Yugoslavia in a place called Vukovar. Um, this is um, a place uh, pretty much in the middle of the country, what was back in the day former Yugoslavia. It's um, literally a border, a Danube River. Um, it's a border of, between Serbia and Croatia at this point right now. So this was a place where um, uh, where the war started, where the civil war started in 1991. And uh, my brother and I were then um, we were living with my father, who lived in that place, and uh, we um, we were like eight and seven years old. Um, so you know, this um, my mother was living in Germany. The war started. It took five years. Um, my father and every man in this uh, village that we're from was um, either um, there was a a lot of paramilitary groups, and so he was. Um, everyone was. Uh, there was no question if you wanted to join or don't want to join. It had to be. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, I think, the brutality of this war. That it wasn't between military. It was very much like the military existed, but then there there was a lot of the subgroups of paramilitary, which were um, different kinds of people. You know, like you had from criminals to like all kinds of uh, nationalists and all kinds of. of um, fanatic um, supporters of some sort of like um, individual country that they wanted to have. So that's why it was so strange and difficult and brutal in the same time because um, you just never knew who is going to come to your house and what they want or like, you know, are they like friendly or not friendly. It was just like a strange time to, to live through. But like I said, my father was um, part of one of the parliamentary groups and um, yeah, it was... Um, I guess you know, like anybody in the in the war who lived through the war, it's never really as as it's shown in the TV. You know, 
there is like a routine in life. Um, there is it's a different routine, of course. You know, there is times when you like hide in the basement or you're really afraid, and those memories definitely uh, shape you. But it's not like I, w- I don't think it was like something that um, it wasn't like in the movie, in the, in the sorry, in the, in the, like the way the TV pro, uh, projected or the way like the news make it look like. So. Um, in 1995, my mother was able to come to, you know, she was living in Germany and she was able to pass those borders, which were, like I said, a bunch of different boards of those paramilitary groups who were holding mm-hmm. uh, the territory. And she was able to pass through that and um, through, like, paying money and, like, paying people, like, to pass and basically, like, stole us from my dad when he wasn't there. And we were able to make it to, to Germany same way, like, we basically, she's we went into the bus and then just before the border she smuggled us through the bathroom window uh, and um, yeah then we were in germany and that's um how we then um slowly like went to school there and so like that was the sort of the early childhood and and, and growing up there mm-hmm. i hope it's abstracted into like in different parts i sometimes myself have to put it together as one story but yeah <laughs> i know it's funny to try to tell your entire Childhood, like the whole life in 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 like you know two minutes or in, in like a you know, like a smaller uh, blurb uh, explanation, and it's a bit harder, you know. Yes. So when you said that it was much, it was different than how the media portrayed it. Could you talk a little bit more about what what the, your direct experience was? Well, like I say, you know, I'm not trying to diminish any any experiences. Like, of course, it, there is, there was, it, it was um, a very not normal situation. Right? Yes, it was um, strange in many ways that, that it could be. You know, you never know what's going to be tomorrow, and you know, you grow up, you start to um, find your way to uh, get used to gunshots and and bombs um, that sometimes were very close, sometimes very far. And sometimes just far enough so you can always hear it, and um, and with this living with this uncertainty. Of course, as a child, I can only tell you mine and my brother's experience. Yeah, uh, it was it was a bit strange. Of course, there was moments where I really remember being afraid for my life, or being afraid my my dad wasn't there, my grandmother was there, and so there was definitely when you get too scared to the moment that you shiver. But in the same time, I, I remember when I when I got to Germany and uh, my mother was uh, she watched this uh, war there and where we are and was afraid for us because she watched a very different news. They were showing mm-hmm. pictures that were really brutal and that were really uh, it almost looked like that everyday life looked so in- intense, you know. And for example, when you look today, any other war 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 zone like um you see how the media portrays most the most dramatic imagery you know they don't really go in there and show the everyday life um you know and i think that's the beauty of human beings we are capable of adapting to everything you know so there it's you know you adapt to it and you find your routine in it you find your way to live through that and you mm-hmm. survive through. of course later those are, those are there's consequences and um 
my brother and I definitely, it took a while to realize what the consequences are, you know, later on we become uh, teenagers and, and, and young men, we realized there's definitely some some things we took from it, um, mental scars that um, that are definitely shaping us in one way or another, like uh, he's, we basically both have very difficult um, insomnia, so we are having a very uh, difficult way of sleeping and being calm, mm -hmm. especially during the night, and I have... Um, I think it's called abnormal sleepwalking, sleep terror, or something like that. So, which is like um, I um, have periods of times when I um, wake up uh, completely in different neighborhood in my underwear, and I don't know how I got there, mm -hmm. uh, and always with a knife or some sort of a weapon, and it always feels like that I'm like rushing out of my apartment because I'm scared something's going to happen there. Um, mm -hmm. So this is something that I've been living for many, many years. And as a teenager, later on traveling, I always had these issues. Whenever I met someone, I would never sleep at their place. I would just like leave at the moment I knew I'm going to be tired because I was afraid. And I never really knew what it is. I knew it's really intense. Um, but um, my brother and like we always had a way of like finding ways. You know, when I'm at home, when I know those spirits come in, I sleep with a key. Or, um, or I, when it comes really difficult, I tie myself to the bed with one hand so that I cannot like do something strange. But uh -huh. uh, for example, my best friend and, and roommate, he, um, he had a camera installed. So that was the first time a couple of years ago that I could actually see myself and what. And so I've been uh -huh. kind of like trying to put that into my work too, but back to what it was like. So like, like I said, these kind of things, those kind of um, scars um, mentally, you, you got to see them later. You got to understand that they come from that for sure. Uh, my brother, same thing. Like he has very, um, very difficult sleep uh, patterns, like where like a little noise it puts his heart like in you know, racing, it gets panic attacks. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that, that when you're a child, you don't really get to see right away. You know, it seems very normal that you just like, okay, now you're in a different place. But later on, you start to like show more presence and you have to deal with it. So, um, like I say, it wasn't as dramatic as the media portrays, but of course it was different uh, um, everyday life. It was a different situation, a very um, strange situation to live through. Yeah. Have you ever heard of, there's this movie called Homeland, Iraq Year Zero or something? I think that's it. Have you seen it? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I remember. I think I saw it in maybe 2016, but I went to the theater and because it was in two parts, it's this really, really long, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's this very long documentary that takes place during the time when America invaded Iraq, well, right before America invaded Iraq and then after. And it's just this guy who goes and films. Um, I think he'd been studying cinematography or something like that in France. I saw it when I was in France. But he comes back to Iraq and he lives with his family and records them during this time before the United States invades and after. And it has yeah, this fascinating combination of showing the daily life of the people, but then the complete strangeness and the violence of like what's starting to rain down on them. And I think the two parts are, yeah, are three and a half hours long each. And when after I saw the first one, it was so intriguing that I went right back into the theater and like bought the ticket for the second half. So I watched that for like seven hours. It's really unique. Um, maybe there's lots of other films like that, but they're obviously not mainstream. Did you see it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I love this. I was just about to say that this is a great um, reference. And um, I would definitely encourage everyone to see this uh, trilogy. It's really beautiful. Um, yeah, that was a good point. So, um, what was so in particular? How did the subject of subordination, which seems like a heavy, like topic in in your artist statement and in your work, like where did where does that idea originate for you? Um, so this started, you know, like um, to basically like um, it started to be more clear later on um, uh, when I studied art, you know, and and. I guess the concept of it started to be um, very much clear, very uh, very late on wherever it was kind of like um, when I started to understand those concepts and, and uh, basically uh, uh, pinpoint that this is exactly what what I'm working with. Before, those are just fragments of like um, um, sort of like thoughts where they come from. But um, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in in, in uh, former Yugoslavia, and then when you, when I, when I went to Germany, basically my family, my mother took us to Germany, and growing up there, um, and the war was still going on. You know, we still had like 98, 99, we had bombings, and, and there was there is always something happening in the Balkans, which uh, sounds like a pattern of violence that I'm also um, very interested in. But like um, when you are there in, in the West, and you start to see the same conflict you lived through, or a bit of a different, but you see. It in your country, and you see how the Western, um, and I'm talking about specifically in Germany, how they portray that, you know, how they portray your own people, how they portray um, the war and, and, and the place itself. And it was always something imperial, you know, they always like showed it like, okay, you know, look what they're doing again, you know, look at these barbaric people, uh-huh. look at, um, you know, and not in the same words, of course, but in, in, in a way, like, you know, in a kind of like very sarcastic way of showing, like, okay, we are civilized, but they are not. And that's why these things are happening. So, um, mm-hmm. and always there is always something like a feeling that they're watching it from above, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and like that's what's happening. Though. And so then growing up there, I, you know, there is always this. Um, there was always this feeling like that you can never be German, you know, it doesn't matter how, how you speak the language when you were there, it always felt like they are judging you by the way your ethnicity is, you know. And so they would have those like nicknames for people from the Balkans and all kinds of like um, sort of like jokes that you went through the school and you realize that um, it's not just the kids, it's like the whole system is like that, you know. The moment you, you know, like the moment you, um, like I can tell you for an instance a story about um, a teacher who um, uh, there was a one of we wanted to have there was a music class and um, one of the kids from from Balkans from Yugoslavia wanted to play he was a really good piano player he wanted to play something from Bach and the teacher was like oh you know he was pissed that we just started like messing around with the piano and but the, his answer was so strange because he said like you shouldn't you know you shouldn't play this this is um, this is a very difficult piece of music and it belongs to Germans that's what you know you are not from there you will never understand this mm-hmm. and it's always this sort of way you know and when you start looking deeper into it you realize they when you are from a, from from the Balkans from there they look at you as like um, as this kind of like primitive person who uh-huh. um, doesn't know what culture and intellect is so there that's how you are treated the whole time and um, 
my mother was a, a cleaning lady and she was also like um, uh, working in the senior center. So, you know, I f you felt it there, you know. So she used to sometimes take us to work with her and, and help her and it was really um, humiliating, you know, because you're brought into a place and you're a young boy with like, 13, 14 years old and then, you know, the girl who are in the, you're in the house your mother cleans and she's like your age too, you know, and you have to clean her room. It was super humiliating. But in this concept, that, that's when it started to, when I started to like um, understand this, uh, there is, uh, you know, because when you, when you say I want to experience this uh, sort of humiliation in real life, it's really hard because not every time you cannot just say, okay, I want to, you know, you, then you fabricate it. But this was really feeling what it feels like to be ashamed, to feel, to be humiliated, you know, because there's a situation that my mother brought us in, you know, so I couldn't, like, I couldn't um, not, like, obey, you know, she was like, you have to help me, and that's that's how it is, that's our life in Germany, you know, mm -hmm. so, but I remember those feelings, like, you know, pressing with my nail on my finger, because I was so embarrassed, and I was so, I wanted to, like, disappear in the, in the, in the ground, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, that later on, um, you know, it did something to me. Uh, I started to think about this more. Prior to that, um, in, in Yugoslavia, I, I missed the part. Um, we have a different ways of um, uh, the way the school system works, and that's not everywhere. Specifically, in smaller uh, rural areas, in, in, in villages, uh, the schools from the communist era are very harsh. You know, your teacher hits you. He's um, they're punishing you different. Very very differently today, of course, but they still exist. So, for example, they would have a couple of different forms of punishing you if you're, like, hyper, if you're not listening in class. And one of the ways where you could never cut your hair too short, so they would pull your hair up. Uh, another one was with a stick over the hand. And the third one was you kneel on on, on dry uh, corn um, with, with your, without, like, you know, you pull up your pants and, and you have to get in uniform, so you, like, kneel uh, in shorts, you knew like on, on that, which make your kneel, it makes your knees like bloody and, 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 and blue. Then you go home and your father sees that uh, that you were bad, so then you get punished again, you get beaten again, right? So, and I remember I, I was um, very hyper as a kid, so this kind of uh, punishments, I remember they were always, I was always basically, um, I was always being punished, like, you know, with, with, uh, with any kind of those, like either my hair was pulled or anything. And I remember at some point, there was something that I realized, especially because we had um, teachers, female teachers, and, um, and I realized that at some point it didn't do me anything. It was very humiliating being on the, on the, on the in front of basically your, with your back to, to the class and the class and the other kids are throwing paper at you and like laughing at you because you're kneeling at that corner and your teacher is next to it writing on the, on the, what is it called in the US? The blackboard uh, whiteboard. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, um, and then, you know, you're there on your knees and, and this kind of ways of um, being humiliated, being punished in that way. Um, I started to realize that at some point when this, when the bridge, when you are like doing that for when you force to do that for a really long time there is i don't know if I, this is still i'm working on this but like i started to realize that this sort of thing started to become a pleasure pleasure it started to turn into pleasure it started to turn into something exciting you know so then i would um would uh, purposely do something wrong so that i could be uh, uh, enduring that so that um was something that i didn't realize i'm doing but you know it was just like a pattern and i realized uh, as a boy this kind of like 
excitement in myself. Like and later on in Germany, the same thing, you know, when you're punished, when you are doing something, and you realize that those, uh, I was really fine in that. I was really, um, I was finding it was an interesting um, uh, discomfort zone for me. And I wanted to, you know, I never knew when it's coming, but I knew if I do something enough to, to get there, then it's going to be exciting because it's uncertain, it's uncontrolled, it's, it's strange, you know. And um, in the same time, by me doing that to my teachers, to like other kids, it's like you, you uh, provoke another person to become um, say, sadist or dominant, to put out some other uh -huh. sides of them that they wouldn't be before, you know. And so this was throughout my youth. And then later on, of course, when I studied, I started to be very interested in books and, and, and this kind of subject. Uh, but I didn't really know what I what I'm going to do with it and why is that. Uh, and then slowly, slowly, you know, like um, through throughout my um, education uh, to the art uh, art school, I started to more turn towards um, myself, towards my life, towards my mother, towards and finding those patterns, you know, mm -hmm. uh, finding them in different in different forms, the way they like. Um, the way they like realize themselves throughout our lives, and then I started to like see, okay, how can I like use that and work with it? And so this this is like a very big subject for me because um, I'm looking into it not just as an individual, but as a like pattern of a group of people, or community, or even um, a whole like uh, country, you know, an archetype. You're starting to do that, which is more difficult. You start to talk about essentialism when you start to do that, and I was in trouble for many times pointing to this but it's definitely pointing something to interesting it. to me to find patterns that are like um connecting itself to that could you sorry i think i missed what were what did you get in trouble many times for well for like you know when i was i was starting to um in my research i was starting to like for example to take on the whole um i would take the slavic people and i would mm -hmm. apply this pattern of masochism on, on top of it, you know, and mm -hmm. I would write a paper that um, was basically my theory was that uh, there is a trace of masochism that can be traced throughout the whole, that can be connected through the whole Slavic people, you know, mm -hmm. and through art, through different places. And of course, this you start to like, you talk about essentialism, and, and that's like, um, it's like a big, because there you cannot really, there is no evidence for it. You know? what, so, what's essentialism? I don't know. Sorry, what? What's essentialism? When you start to like take one pathology and apply it to oh, a yeah. group of people, mm -hmm. say this is um, this applies to all of them because their race or because they're whatever you know, yeah, yeah. whatever where the place they're from. Uh, in my case, I did that, but I did that taking where I'm from and starting to like say, okay, this is I, I do believe, and you know, I, there, I, I apply this theory because I wanted to experiment. I wanted to, you know, I always like to take adventures with whatever I do. So in, in in this kind of paper and this kind of way of thinking, I wanted to just see a, a reaction of my teacher of somebody like, or basically get a feedback if I do something like that, because I know it's not the right way to do. But like, what if this kind of crazy idea? What if you like? Let's see what happens. You know, mm -hmm. let's let's try to take this theory and let's try to develop it and find evidence for it. And my evidence was finding it in arts, finding different like uh, different uh, like in music, in paintings, in in tales. And so, like, I tried. To, I used that as my evidence that masochism is uh, is um, 
it's um, how you say like part of uh, something uh, essential in, in, in the Slavic people. So this is kind of the things that I'm constantly researching. So it's definitely a big subject um, for me. Um, still, yeah, like still thinking of, of like this is very much something that I'm constantly uh, researching, constantly trying to wave in, into my work. Mm -hmm. Was the on your website? I think I saw pictures of that you did some sort of art art exhibit where someone was kneeling on corn. Was that the portrait of a deity? Um, yeah, that was, so that's for example a project that um, that definitely uh, harks on that um, experience as a child that I had, and that person kneeling it's me. Um, so it was. I wanted to do a self-portrait, and this was sort of my, my mother passed away in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, throughout before that and, and throughout that, I was I was really uh, looking into something of like um, between video and photography, but like I wanted to point the camera at me, but I wanted to I wanted to do it in a way that like okay, how do you make something? How is it? Um, how do you get away from the visual? How do you get the, from away from just the aesthetic? How can something be much more? How can it dig into what you are? Like basically those things that we just spoke about. Um, and um, and it was like you know it didn't make any sense in the beginning. But I remember I um, um, I did uh, some psychedelics, and I remember um, in some of those trips, I remembered really vividly this moment in my childhood when I was uh, forced to kneel on court and uh, it was so like present in me and I wrote it down and then went to my studio and I started to say okay like how can I how can I use this how can I like relive this and um, so basically then I um, put that as the main concept and I um, point like I wanted to see what of the people in my life were playing a, a very specific role like um, from my mother to my brother to like really my mentor to people who were really there for me but in the same time who are the, the, the opposite of those people who are the people that I'm in a really bad that either hurt me or I hurt them in one way or another mm -hmm. and not physically but yeah. throughout relationship and I made uh, uh, this list of people and I divided them in 12 and I put like six on one side six on the other side and so like I went and um, and they were all scattered around the world because I lived in different places from you know Italy Germany of course from Yugoslavia England, Paris, and uh, France, and then America eventually. So I, I pinpoint where they are, and then I went back and redid. Uh, I brought, I kind of created my own way of like ritual and how I wanted that to be. And so basically, did with each person. I asked them to be part of uh, this work or this this project, and I performed in front of them this sort of ritual, which is a kneeling in front of them and sort of like um, it's almost this kind of worship of like. Um, Elevating them on something that they are, that they were playing in, in sort of my life, and what kind of what their power, what they what their power became, you know. So it was something I was experimenting what it what it does, what it did with each one person. Because I remember, with of course, it was easier with your best friend or with someone that's really close to you, but it was way more difficult with someone that you really had a bad relationship, and then you stand in front of them and you perform such. A, um, form of submission, which uh, makes everything, you know, when you are. I don't know if you ever felt that, but you know, if you're in, 
if you feel like really weird and awkward and, and like strange and you're like, ah, I just like, it's an awful feeling. And you know that a person feels the same because you just put them in there, you know? Uh -huh. So you, you feel red and you blush and, and the other person feels too. And, but the, the, the way this ritual was designed, it was that we look at each other, we were like facing each other and you're standing in front of each other completely nude. So there is nothing you can, and everything is in the white space, white box space. There is nothing you can turn your way in and, and be distracted. You had mm -hmm. to, you had to force yourself in it. And to me, it did a lot. And I was really, I was really able to dig into this discomfort with each person. And this is something that uh, I always try to reach. You know, like in my childhood, I really find it interesting to be in this discomfort zone. Um, and again, not something that you can fabricate. You know, of course, like, you can go to like any SMM club and say, well, I want to do that. But that's not that. Yeah. You know, that's you basically go and find something sexually attractive and you go there and you pay some person and they do this to you. That's not it. This is literally uh, the reality in life, you know, like mm -hmm. to get that in your feeling, to you know that this, you're just in there. Another person is in there too. And there is just like for minutes or, or, or seconds and then that's it. And mm -hmm. then it, it's just like, a weird thing that you don't want to speak about anymore. So those kind of things I'm after all the time. I feel like um, I, I, I found so so many rich things in it uh, that shape me as, as, as an individual, but also shape other person. And and uh, I make work about it. So then I hope this work uh, translates that. Whatever it translates, it does something when a viewer watches this or, 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 or basically experiences life. Um, there is some, I feel, I hope they are, they are experiencing something of that. Did you get any feedback on that project in particular from anyone that was interesting to you? Um, you know, it, uh, it was my thesis work. I, I uh, worked on it for five years. I started 2014 and I finished literally 2019 in June. Um, um, and uh, and this is uh, so basically like I, I first time showed it in my thesis in my final um, in the in the final uh, MFA show mm -hmm. and um, and I performed it live as well uh, there for it was like a quick uh, ten minutes performance uh, to basically activate the space and I only had uh, two of the triptychs so that there is like it was a picture and a video. So I, I, I showed only two of the triptychs out of 12 and the video of all the people and then uh, like a loop. And uh, the feed, I mean, the, the place was packed, you know, you couldn't enter it when the performance was happening. And it was, the feedback was very, you know, uh, as the same, I found it very interesting because the same way that um, people don't want to talk about when they are in this discomfort, the same way the feedback was very, you know, I yeah. got the feedback, of course, from my... Um, professors and people that I work with in the grad school and the director of the school, they were very excited about it and I received a fellowship uh, by showing this work to, to the committee of the school and, um, and they really liked it. So I knew that, um, that you know, it did, I, I received that feedback, but from the people individually, they were very, they didn't know how to answer it, to what to do, like, you know, and I found this interesting because that's exactly when I was when I was doing the performance with each of these individuals. I never after it we just never talked about it. It was just something that like okay let's let's do it and then we we just left. It, you yeah. know, no one wanted to really speak how they felt and, and it was just like something like ah I just like and I and I myself found it this way too. So I I knew that the feedback it's um, 
it's great, you know, it's like never going to be this kind of like, you know, watching a painting and you're visually excited about it, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a different sort of uh, work, so feedback was, um, yeah, like, yeah. all over the place, it's never really, no one really took time to, like, okay, like, let me tell you what I feel, and I feel this is okay, you know, this is some, some, some work do that, some, some things you watch or see, and you need to internally, maybe you like it, maybe you hate it, but that's on you, you know, that's maybe you don't want to share that. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many instances in life like that, though, like what you were talking about before, the idea of, like, you go to a fight, you watch the fight, you walk out of the fight, and no one really talks about the state that they were in during, yeah. during that. Yeah, there is something interesting about um, subordination or submission, masochism overall, it's, um, in any aspect. I mean, masochism to, today is still... Um, linked to se- sexuality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only place we know it today about. It. It's, uh, I find that this is so limited, you know, because it gives you only one part of it. Uh, but if you think about it, any person who has some sort of fetishes or um, wants to be, it's, draw- it's drawn to this world, they will always never speak about it. They will yeah. always feel this is something internal. And I feel the same way, many ways about my work. I don't like to really um, speak so much about it before I do it, or um, mm-hmm. I make my map myself out how I want to approach it, and then I do it. And then the feedback is the same way. Like um, I never really stand there uh, whenever I was crit. I never ask anybody like, "Oh, how do you like that?" Or is yeah, this yeah. getting to you in a certain way? And I feel like this is the same way when you, you know, when you are in this world, you are feeling you're watching something, and you're never gonna talk about. It. You know, like you, you know, you find someone being humiliated in front of you, you don't really going to speak to your friends about it or, you know, talk to that person or talk to the person who humiliated that other person. You're just going to be like, yeah, all right, like let's, I, you know, it will just like you think about it maybe or maybe you hate it. Maybe you don't you find it like that. I hope I never see something like that again, but you're not going to really speak about it, you know. Yeah, but that's why it's so cool that you're going into it at least in this in this artistic way. Like I, the topic of humiliation, it deserves a lot of exploration. And do you think you could talk uh, a, a little bit more about, um, yeah, about fetishism? What you've been exploring with fetishism? Um, yeah. So this is, um, you know, again, fetishism is same. Uh, first of all, it's um, always linked to sexuality. Yeah. Um, which is which is the only because it's mostly present there, you know. It's mostly we are we are always um, we, we, that's how it's present yeah, physically, that's where you know. Like, give uh, it some and that's how sorry what? Yeah, that's how just with masochism and fetishism, it's just it's just the familiar way that we know how to use that vocabulary world exactly. word or identify an outlet, but they're just completely pervasive in our whole life. Yeah. Yeah, like, and there is a reason why that is, you know, like psychoanalysts like Freud and um, Lacan, they they were the first ones to like um, talk about this, and um, they the way they experienced it for the first time was by having um, patients and, and cases where they uh, where they find evidence of it, you know, and this evidence was mostly always linked to that they linked that to. Um, sexuality and, and, and something they they link that to you know so i feel like uh, but there is much more to it 
you know, like when you think about fetishism, just the word itself and where it derives from, it's um, it's uh, a, a tribe in um, basically a place in, in Africa where um, where um, now I now I'm um, now my history is lacking now talking to you, so I hope <laughs> you can edit that out in a differently way. But I don't want to like pinpoint. Because uh, my I forgot uh, what the name is of that, uh, but uh, it, it's a place where a piece of wood was um, man-made, and then that piece of wood, when it was done, it was um, you know it, it was elevated to become something. So then they worshipped that, but it, it was man-made. You know, so the first um, um, person who I think was Kraft Ebbing, if I'm not mistaken, because he, he was the one who um, saw it first as a German uh, psychology, um, psychologist, yes, and um, he saw it in, in somewhere like when he traveled, to, uh, I guess it was somewhere in Africa, I believe, so I'm forgetting, I'm sorry about that, but um, mm -hmm. he saw that and he could not um, understand it, how normal piece of wood was actually carved and made by by a human and then that piece of wood was sold to have this sort of like uh, or sometimes was sold but it was all it was ornamented to become this like almost deity like uh, object so that's where the name comes from that's where this uh, where the concept comes from and then obviously um Lacan and other psychologists started talking about this like oh you know when a child, how, where does it come from? You know, they could never, it's still today very like a puzzle. Where does this come from? How come first they were like trying to understand like, okay, this is child's sub, um, substitute of a mother. You know, a mother doesn't show up when the child cries mm -hmm. and then it takes a shoe or it takes something else. And then that's the substitute that becomes, and then that object uh -huh. starts to have a power onto the child and then later on that that object becomes fetishized in terms mm -hmm. of fetishized sexually right <laughs> so all those are theories that um none of them are not true and none of them are really completely true you know there is no no evidence for this to be exactly it's 100 percent to be correct right like many things in our mind you know internal things you can never say this is exactly how it is you know there's many different aspects of it and um i think a lot of those big people like Freud always at the end you see them they were really struggling with this because they could never really say where does it come from you know everything mm -hmm. else you can understand traumatic events and the, but this kind of thing you cannot you know you pinpoint it to the boys but then you're like what about the girls you know mm -hmm. and how is that working so there is a lot of questions and and that's why it's interesting but um um i found it uh, just in, in, in its raw idea, in, in the concept, I find it um, really incredible. Like, um, you know, there is something that um, other people, other human beings find disgusting or something we use every day. And let's let's take any of those. So there is like 136 fetishes uh, in, in this book of psychoanalysis. Um, but like, let's take one of them. Let's give mm -hmm. ourselves the shoes. Uh, and like this is something you walk in they're useful for uh, you step into dirt you know so then how is something like that um, by some other individual that that piece of uh, that's that object and becomes fetishized yeah. and they um, they exactly they worship it they elevate it to this and so yeah you start to ask those questions and it's in its own thing it's it's, fun, it's um, 
incredible, right? Like we have uh, any Christian wears a cross, you know, and that cross has some sort of meaning, you know. It's uh, the same way we, we got it, you know, it's shaped, there's some it's wood or silver or gold, you know, and we kiss it, we pray, we hold it, we, we mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost the same way of like, okay, there is this object, you know, it's, it's still man-made, right? It's not the real cross that, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like, it's derived from that. And if you think about it, it's, um, it's actually where Christ was tortured on, right? But yeah. it's taken that, yeah, and that's, exactly. that's symbol of Christianity, and that's like we, we hold it, we carry it with us as something really precious. So here we are, we have like a person who does that perhaps in his everyday life, but then he has this other um, obsession, which is uh, an object or a, or a body part. And uh, I find it quite fascinating. You know, I find it incredibly fascinating that just the concept of itself and how it mm-hmm. how it um, manifests itself. Of course, um, in a lot of my work, I start to play with it um, using, of course, from the sexual um, sexuality from the from that from that uh, place because that's the only place you can really explore it the most. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, this is um, how to say. This is how I like to think about um, any objects that I use in my performance or in, and I found, um, I like to think about it, for example, like um, there is, um, like, um, let's say, like, for example, in, in the Portrait of DT project, um, my, my father's munition pouch, and uh, this is something that he passed away, and um, he didn't leave a lot of things to us, but that's, for example, I have from him, that's a pouch that is, Dirty, and he wore it when he was in the in war, right? And um, and it smells bad, but it's like real um, small green pouch. And so when I made my performance with the corn, I took the corn and I transformed it into bronze. And that that bronze, I, I put into a box, and then it's like next to that, like it's inside this pouch. So there is those um, objects that we carry on, and they have a specific meaning for us. Um, and so. But it is man, it's my action that made that, you know, into an ornament, into something like, uh, into a fetish, you know, mm-hmm. it, I, I, I make it into that. So I'm constantly playing with that idea just of, as, a, as, a, as a process of like, um, um, I don't want to call myself sculpture and I don't like to think of uh, making sculptures in any ways. Uh, what I like to think of is I use something um, in my performance uh, it can be like um, an object it can be something that i found it can be something personal from my family and then later on transform it like throughout the performance i, I then like alter it and then it becomes something much more valuable mm-hmm. uh, so it becomes a, a sculpture or it becomes something like uh, strong uh, it becomes like uh, it has like a different meaning and so that's why i use um, materials like uh, bronze which is like you know, it gets this like uh, bronze. It's like this kind of luxurious material that, like, we, we you know, it's expensive. And so, like, I, I like to use uh, everyday things that I use in my performance and transform them into that. So, I like to, the fetishism is something I think about as well a lot uh, when I make my work. Like, okay, what what are those things? Like, how can it be used? How can it be transformed? You know, overall, mostly because the way it's uh, the way it functions. You know, the way it's like man-made object that uh, mm-hmm. turns into that. Yeah, I feel like the the example of the cross, like people having their their cross with them, is such like a I don't know, just such an obvious, just such a large scale version of, of fetishism, 
and like you like you said the connection to it that's where Christ was tortured like that's such a fascinating dynamic and in your pre- in the project we were talking about before just this whole sense of like you were on your knees on the corn like the yeah this this deif- deification aspect but it's centered around this weird torture <laughs> that, that we have going on yeah are there are there any other like have you thought more about collective or I don't know, sort of large-scale versions of fetishism, like for example, the cross. Are there other things that you can that you've sort of thought about that we do collectively, like that? Um, not in not in that. Uh, you know, this is not in that way. You know, this is yeah. still didn't. Um, I think it's still very individual, and it's very like um, it's a very. Uh, you can have like okay, you can say there is. Uh, there is a community of people who like that. You can. It's a very difficult way to um, put it, apply it to uh, yeah. collectively. You know? um, just because there is so many uh, deviations and variations of fetishism, you know, and, and how they are manifested. Like um, um, when I, I when I started working in it in my first semester of, uh, of grad school, I uh, worked on. There is a project on my website called um, the Ascent of Kevin. And so, for example, I worked with, uh, there's, I think, six or seven small performance videos with people that actually I found in the, uh, in the Chicago S&M world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, they're found, they're not like I'm going to those clubs. I wanted to find people who are behind the computers, behind, you know. There's a lot of people who don't go to those places. They're, they're afraid, they're ashamed. Mm-hmm. So they are, they are, um, they are finding their ways through uh, through through internet, you know. And there's like portals and websites that uh, you communicate to others, likewise, or you're searching for something. So I use the website called Backpage, for example, to um, to find uh, people that uh, I want to work with. Uh, specifically, looking who writes, you know, who replies to something that I wrote there. In a, in a very specific way, because there is different ways of uh, fetishism, different ways of subordination, different ways of like experiencing humiliation. And for example, you have people who are young and they're just maybe curious, you know, and they're like, okay, I want to like, you know, like you know, Marie, like there is some sort of like adrenaline that they want to taste, you know. So they're like, oh, like, and they're they're quick, you know, they want to get the response. Which mm-hmm. Sometimes the response is very sexual person they believe it's it's giving them what they need right um like we talk about like a dominant person or dominatrix or or whoever they're looking for you know mm-hmm. and and then there is like different stages of it so um like i said it, it's really hard to make it collectively the same because you could have one person who's into shoes or um and that person will there is different uh, there is different uh, levels of that same fetishist, you know. There is one person who really goes, goes, um, uh, goes like you know. He would. There is different ways he 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 wants that in his life. It's differently manifested in him. And there is people like uh, you can definitely like do, do, like make your selection to different like how you find it. There's someone just curious about it. They're part of their sexuality. You know? they're like, mm-hmm. Okay, I want to just like, I tell my partner I want that. And they're like, they're doing it. And they're sick a little bit. But there is people who, 
that object becomes so they're so obsessed with that object that the person doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. The person mm -hmm. doesn't exist. They don't care for it. Because, for example, the person with Kevin, who I worked with, uh, that guy, uh, his email was incredible, and I was a friend of mine who I worked with on this. And what I discovered when we, when, when I filmed that, when we, were, when we were doing this sort of performance with him, is that um, that he was he, he didn't care about me being in the room, about the other person, about my friend. He he was just obsessed with the shoot. He was just uh -huh. obsessed with the object, and he had such power in him. It was almost in trance. It was so intense, like at some points that he, he started out of excitement and he started bleeding out of his nose. And it was this moment where like my friend looked at me and I looked and, and we knew like at some point we have to stop this, you know? Because it was so it was this kind of thing where I tell you there is something in us that we can we are not we don't know. There's this physically uh, and you cannot explain that. How can you explain that 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 something like that has such power, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this is something that um, you have to be careful when you say, like, um, um, you know, to use one one sort of um, umbrella and put it onto a group of people. Yeah, Same way, for example, religion, right? You take you have different sort of Christians. If someone just wears a cross and says, "Well, you know, I'm a Christian," or or any other religion, right? Or you have people who are really fanatic about it. They are like live by that rules. Yeah. And so you know, it's still the umbrella of Christianity, but you can never really say this is all the same. But there is different things. So I think it's very individual, and, and uh, because it's and it's, there is so much to discover, you know. So I, I would I would not make my claim yet, you know, about yes. something like this. Yeah. And I definitely wouldn't make a claim on what I'm about to say, but the idea of that there was something like in your childhood that you didn't get, for example, like from your mother, and there's some experience that you're trying to fulfill through an object, like the the what you're like thinking about people and their fetishes almost reminds me a bit of your artwork. Like they're acting out an experience from their past, like not necessarily like a humiliation from their past, but, but you're acting out like some missing experience that you're fixated on because it, there was something sort of missing from your early experience. Like I've read about the concept of, like healing versus healthy sexuality, like that. That if we're look at looking like in a very pure sense, like healthy sexuality doesn't have, would not at all have that element of that other person doesn't exist, and it's all about this this object of your devotion. Like that, that would be gone. It would be all about the other person. But that in lots of forms of healing sexuality that look that don't look like that, people are almost like trying to experience something that they some unbalanced experience in their life through sexuality and um that's yeah. that's not like i'm not saying that through fetishism that means that those people couldn't heal maybe heal from whatever they didn't get like obviously like you said you be with this feeling like we, we sort of need to stop this because it of the fixation aspect but um yeah, I like what I was going to say is that I don't, of course, I don't have any theory about myself, about psychologically where it really comes from. But it's just such a big topic. And I love how it's combined with this whole idea of deification and devotion 
that's such a giant theme in our culture, like the how people devote themselves to two things and where that comes from. Like, where does this desire for devotion come from where you're on your knees in front of whatever it is that you're on your knees in front of? Yeah, I, I agree with you. There is definitely this, what you just pointed to, which I think um, it's something I would agree in my personal life. It's um, it, There is substitute. I like that word. I like that um, when you substitute something with it. And I do believe that in, in my personal um, like me as an individual, I think uh, um, out of my past, and I substitute a lot for my mother. Like you mm-hmm. know, she wasn't there when when we grew up, and it was war, and so like that time when you really need uh, the mother figure, she wasn't there. My father was there, but then he was in the war, so he was also not there with the grandmother. So mm-hmm. there is um, a need of substituting something, you know, yeah. and um, and and that manifests differently. So I, I absolutely agree that that's one one element that's definitely there i would say that that there is something that that could be we could say if 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 you can like define what's what there where does it come from that um that little ingredient is definitely there like Mm -hmm. the substitute substituting something for it you know so but there is much more to it you know we're just like that's I would say this one, I could say also as well that I agree with you that this is there, just coming out of for myself and knowing that this is there. So could you talk about your your project Letters to My Mother? Yeah, sure. Uh, This is, um, so Letter to My Mother was uh, one of my first projects um, in, in sort of like a, how to say that, the best, where I literally turned um, into my personal story, and so this happened in 2013. I got a phone call from my brother that my bro- my mother got diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, mm-hmm. and uh, you know when that we have a year left. So for me, this message was really devastating uh, for him too, but for me it was different because he lived there. He li- he saw her. They have a very different relationship. For me, when I was very young. Um, like talking about 14, 15, 15, 16, so I already like left uh, the house and I wanted to live on my own just because I couldn't take that. She had, um, um, you know, she was having um, addiction with alcohol mm-hmm. uh, and sleeping pills and, and antidepressiva that she needed for her own, but you know, she was excessively taking those and uh, the mixture of that was making living with her and the relationship with her for me very difficult so yeah. my way of dealing with it was running away from her as, as far as i can go you know and um so we had a lot of like clashes and and so of course when you get that phone call and then you you, you realize that now you have a year to make up for 10 or, or 12 years uh-huh. and for me that was um, incredibly painful so i, I remember i was I started to write a letter, and um, and I uh, wanted to write her uh, this letter that, that basically I would express everything why I was a certain way and, 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 and sort of like ask her to forgive me and, and tell her how much I love her because I knew now now is the time or never. And I remember I had such a difficult time writing this letter because it just felt everything I try, no words can do that. They cannot bridge over what's lost, you know, mm-hmm. now all this, these years are lost, this time is lost, that love she didn't get from me, mm-hmm. it's lost. Mm-hmm. And so that punishment, I, 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 I basically punished her with that, with my absence, uh-huh. yeah. because I believe that she 
is an alcoholic because of her character weakness. That's mm-hmm. like a lot of people think that's you know, how can you do that? Why would you do that? Like you know, stop it! You went so many times to rehab. Like why would you always relapse? Because I didn't realize at that time that it is a disease. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I wrote this letter, I like I, I could never really finish it. I could never really do it. And that made me then look into. Um, places online like different AA groups where I was just looking I was not looking for help I was an addict myself before mm-hmm. when I was young but I was not looking for this I was looking for children of someone my age that I could relate to that uh-huh. I could speak to or maybe find ways how I can speak to them about this that they live through the same way and I could not find it. because it's the moment you AA the first thing it's the name is already anonym right so you will never find names there yes. you will never find you find a group you can go to the group, but even in the group, no one will really speak about their name or what, you know, there is very hard about it. It's a very weird way of like uh, help, like a help group is kind of designed yeah. to be that way. You know, you go in, you go out, but no one knows about it. Yeah. And so um, I realized, okay, you know, this is um, a stranger, I couldn't find it, I was looking for it. Um, and then I, I, um, I went to uh, Germany, that's where my mother lived before she passed. And um, and it was Christmas time and she was just going through her first chemo and I just arrived so I drove her and um, and I asked her like let's let's take a portrait and so the portrait was uh, she she always she always liked the, the, uh, her pictures taken so she felt and she was such a strong woman she lived through, through a lot of things and fought a lot in her life so she believed she can fight that cancer so she told me like oh can you take a portrait of me and you know, so you can, it's going to be the first chemo. So I'm going to have marks here from the chemo. But and I and then you can you can take a picture when I win it when I when I when I when, I, when, when it's over. You know? And I remember I took that portrait of her, and it was a pretty simple portrait. But she was basically new, just covered her 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 front, and um, and she had those marks here. Uh-huh. And um, and I had my, the letter in my pocket, but I couldn't give it to her at that time. And I remember I went back to, to New York, and um, and it was this really painful thing to see your mother going through chemo and, and knowing that it's almost impossible to win something like that. And for me, it was like devastating to really. I was only like very like a few days, and then I left right away. But then I had this portrait, and I had this letter, and um, and then I thought to myself like. What if, what if I take portraits of mothers um, like her in a place that I see as my home, which is America, mm-hmm. and um, and I find and I make like a collage of I make like uh, books. I make a book that has portraits of all kinds of women that go through the same things like her, and my letter with letters of other kids. Uh, can be in it, and that could be the gift to her. So then, then she will understand everything. She will understand that that um, what I'm asking here for to forgive me and to understand that I love her very much. Uh-huh. And um, mm-hmm. I told this to my friend, uh, producer friend of mine, and um, he is very adventurous. But he said it's almost it almost seems impossible because I had a year and I needed to do it in a year. So he said, you know, how do you even find people? Like how do you even find someone who's going to step out and, and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an addict? You know, how, who are you going to, like, especially mother, which is a super stigmatic, like, you know, your, the stigma is, like, high, right? Um, and um, anyway, but life is crazy sometimes, and, um, you know, you never know what's right next to you, but you never really thought of it. So I told a friend of mine, and he said, well, uh, it's a, I never really talk about my, my, my ideas, but... 
because I don't like when people like tell me anything and then I you know usually like the one close to you always ruins everything so okay. but it, and I told this friend so I thought it's a cool idea you know like um, that you want to do it for your mom but he said I have a friend his mom is you know she might be able to help you so I called this other guy and he said yeah here's the number of my mom call her up and I had no idea who that is you know but I called up this woman her name is Sherry Layton and she uh, lives in Texas and um, we talked and I explained her the idea and she said, I like it. Um, in three days, there is a conference of um, substitute alcohol and substitute abuse. Um, and sorry, alcohol and substance abuse. Yeah. Um, why don't you come down to Texas and then I can introduce you to some people and you can tell your idea and they might be able to help you. So um, me and my producer, my best friend, basically we took a flight. We took, we booked a flight, we took our backpack with the camera, with the old camera, and I think we just went. Okay. And um, yeah, so I went there, met her, and she opened us the door to big organization in America uh, that um, were basically working with just women, with just mothers. Mm -hmm. And I told them the story what I wanted to do, and they really liked it. And they said, you know, there is a problem about this AEA, this anonymous thing, because when people go home, they still it's a disease, you know, it still can be relapsed and the family needs to be acknowledged. So yeah. she says, I believe there is some woman who would be happy to do that. And I was able to literally travel through 11 states in the US and meet around 39 women. My mother is 40 and uh, basically portrait them with or without the children, with or with, uh, with their children, sometimes without, they didn't have custody. Uh -huh. and, um, and I told them, you know what, this is, um, there is my letter. And if you want, you can write the letter to your child. And if the child is old enough, they can also write the letter to their mom. Mm -hmm. And I told them, just send me whatever you have. And that's it. So they sent us letters, some of them they wanted. And this is really intense letters, of course. So that, that was basically the idea, you know. And, um, I had the portraits and I had the, the letters. And uh, so... I went, I remember I went to New York Times and to different publishers thinking, you know, they're going to like that idea. They're going to like help me publish it. But at that time in the U.S., they thought, oh, you know what? This is, um, this is like individuals. There are a small group of people who have this problem. No one wants to read about it. It's very mm -hmm. too negative and intense and like whatever. And they said, you're way too young to, with the subject, you, you're, you are nobody. You're not an artist that people know, so no one will want to buy this book. Mm -hmm. So it was like my mother passed and I was really like, I, was, I had like around 300 meetings for this book and everybody liked it, but no one was able to help. And it's not that I searched for money. I wanted them to like publish it. Yeah, you know? but uh, it just didn't happen, and I was about to give up. And um, anyway, I met like um, make a story store. To, uh, make I found a young publisher in Italy, and uh, they liked the idea. He liked what he had someone in his family who had uh, this issue, and so he knew what uh, what it was about. Yeah. and they published it, and uh, it came out 2016. Um, 2016, yes, 2016 came out. Um, I planned the exhibition in New York and during the exhibition we made a short film um, and so that was just three objects uh, three three uh, things like the book the exhibition and the short film and um, we had we had a book in Rizzoli and I remember they, they they bought only they said like we only take five because no one is gonna buy that and by then that was June 
by September, it was a number five bestseller in New York. And um, they basically sold like, uh, we have only 10 copies, 20 copies left here in Europe because there was an exhibition, but it was really well received and it went like, you know, the exhibition was shown in different ways, not the same way, it was always a little different. I always would show a couple pictures, maybe the film, maybe that, but uh, basically traveled all around the um, United States and showed that uh, in different conferences. And I, what I really liked about it that this project wasn't really going to any art galleries as much as it went to the places that I really wanted it to go, which was like uh, AA uh, meetings, uh, conferences about substance abuse, different uh, community groups that were had that had that issue because it was it is an epidemic in our country in the US and um, and that they, 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 they wanted the people to see they wanted it to be you know and I wanted that the book really exists in those organizations that help women that help people with this kind of thing and so it did you know, it went there and actually we went we were in Colorado too in a couple I think a year ago and um, so that really made me happy I was like um, that this project uh, started with my mother. It started with something that I really, uh, I was really dealing with, and I had really trouble uh, coping with this kind of idea that my mother is passing and she's an addict, and I didn't have a way to be with her. I didn't understand, and I made a mistake. Uh -huh. And so, yeah. this in her name, that project sort of went, and um, yeah, and became sort of things that, um, yeah, like I feel like I hope it still does, and it still helps people that or makes give someone like a little bit of inspiration who goes through that. Yeah, there's so many elements in that whole project where you're bringing something that people don't talk about um, out and that seems really healthy. Yeah, it, there is some sort of like you go through it, it's like a, almost like a purging way, you know, like you're finding ways to kind of like open up the wound and heal it. And I think in my work, there's a lot about this kind of, um, there's this kind of self-destructive um, patterns in us, um, in, you know, different different ways, you know, and that how and what we, how we cope with certain things, you know. And I found uh, fetishism and, and I find, sorry, I found masochism um, like an interesting tool, you know, that to, to be able to, like, uh, use it for your own, um, for a way to, to find, to substitute something, to find a way to live through, uh, through traumatic events, to find a way to, um, that it actually helps you go through, through things. And so there is an uh, incredible uh, potential in, those, uh, in, in this concept that I like to explore. Yeah, that makes me, I'm going to read the end of your artist statement again, maybe to like wrap up the interview and have you maybe talk a bit more about it, but it says, um, I sometimes look to the ways in which masochism transforms into fulfillment and experience that some would dismiss as only pain. And I see that in this alchemy, a guide to understanding how people come to survive subordination and pain. This is not to erase that pain, but rather to figure out how it can be endured. This is such a important concept for the world. <laughs> um, so could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, there is a lot to unpack, uh, but yeah. um, I think, you know, um, there is, uh, like, I think the best way is to think about um, 
like in the in the in the car, you know, when you have the, when you drive, right? Uh, the speed of how you say the speedometer, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know how it goes, like I mean, this is mostly old cars now. It's more different, but it goes like from from left to the right, right? It will mm-hmm. show you like mm-hmm. like on the left you're at lower speed, but on the right you're like exceeding maximum speed, right? Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the middle is where you want to be in a way, right? If you go through the highway. Anyway, but um, I like to think about this kind of concept of the speed meter. In terms of uh, when we talk about um, pleasure, like a joy, happiness, mm-hmm. and when we talk about pain um, or or grief or anything that is like unpleasant, so mm-hmm. I like to think about those two different ends, those different extremes. Now, um, the way we grow up and the way people, the way we like uh, our society makes us uh, believe is that um, you should always um, you should always go towards the towards the happiness. In there, you're gonna find inspiration, motivation, and everything else. You don't want to go there. And when you are happy to be there because of some situation, you want to, you want to like, um, you want to go towards the, you know, you want to get, try to get out of it. That's yeah. how we are, you know. And that's immediately an immediate response with our body, you know. When when you find yourself in a, in a situation with grief or um, emotional stress, you want to get out of it. You want to get towards the other side. But I found this not a problem, but I found it um, a shame because I feel as much as it is in one side, you have this potential to 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 get. There is some rich things that that fool you yeah. in the other side, and I'm not talking about like uh, something that people now immediately would would think of, like oh, you know, towards pain and this kind of like um, dark gothic uh, concepts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about if you, um, there is, uh, in both sides, there is, uh, like, in, in, in pain, in masochism, there is this discomfort uh, ways of being, that like when you are in it, there is, and you want to get out of it, and there is this, this moments that, um, they're very unique, and uh, they are, they can be very useful, they can be very rich for yourself, for, for going through that. It's just about how you're gonna, how you're gonna, um, how you gonna like? Um, I say like how you gonna be in it, you know, when that happens. And so there is a way of like uh, adjusting yourself of thinking about it. For example, when you ask yourself this question, when a person is um, it's in prison, like when this is something um, America has one of the biggest prison systems in the world. So you have supermax, right? There is a, an individual for whatever what he did, he's put there. He's put in a in a, in a box. And he, his mm-hmm. body belongs to the to the government. He mm-hmm. belongs. He's he's not. He has a number, and that's his number. He's going to give him food and water when he's and he's given this like really small four by four uh, square foot room with a toilet where he is, and that's that's good. That's the rest of his life. And sometimes he weighs death row. So think about you are yourself in that position, and now how do you like you know most of us would. We cannot comprehend what that it is like, you know, to be locked out away, to be locked up and waiting for your for your death or waiting for whatever. What is both all the scenarios is terrible. It's impossible to comprehend. But so those kind of situations, there is ways that this can um, this can be used. The, the, that masochism and and your a way of sub, subordination turning into pleasure. That this you can use it in your advantage. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there is this theory that I'm working on, and, and in my work, I'm trying to constantly see how that plays out when 
you are on, you know, and let's take an individual who is on his knees, who is punished by a teacher or by another person, and now uh, this is this humiliating form and you feel like you want to get out of your skin. But what if in that particular moment that could be turned into pleasure or that could be turned into something joyful, like exciting? Um, and that our mechanism is, is designed to survive, right? So what if that is actually could be a, a use for survival? Uh -huh. Used to like, um, how to say that, like um, not make things better in a way, but what if that like fuels you, you know? Yeah, I then if you think about those like extreme situation, they are, they don't have power anymore. They yes. are almost like, uh, that's what people say, there's this concept when they say the masochist, He's in charge all the time. You know, think about it. Like you go to a person and you tell them, like, I want you to do this to me. You're in charge. You are the director of the scenario. Mm -hmm. So in the same way there, and so any masochist, any person who who strives towards subordination, humiliation, it's like a muscle, right? At some point you exhaust this thing that somebody did it for the first time. You're like, oh, wow, I'm so excited. Then you want the real thing. You strive for the real thing. You want you want to find some, this person who does that out of their nature, which is almost impossible. Like uh, each one of us, you will not really find that person who's going to do it. But like um, that's what I'm saying. So it's like when you are put in the situation that uh, embodies this re reality, and somehow you find yourself that this is this discomfort where somebody or some system is humiliating you, or you have to subordinate to it. If you can use that in fuel, it, uh, you know that that actually it's powerful for you. That actually excites you. That actually like does something to you. The system loses power. Yes, you know. That's and so I this is I find like um, in, in in the Western culture we talk about there is this representation of a hero, mm -hmm. you know, a war hero, or like in the movies you have this like hero image of a person, you know, just like a good guy who like does always this good thing but the hero is always this like strong person like, strong you know and they're constantly talking about it now it doesn't matter if male or female but it's always this, like strong and so brave and powerful but not and and, and the negative the, the the weak person the the guy who is like kind of broken and yeah or the woman who's like the, the person who's like broken and kind of like on the floor that's like that's like oh you, you know that's you don't want to be that you don't want to like you don't want to find yourself in it that's like when you failed Yes. But I found exactly this position an incredible potential for, yes. for a lot of things. And um, this is, uh, in my statement, this is something that, um, that, I, that I'm exploring with, you know, that I'm like orchestrating situations to see when this pattern, uh, how this could be traced, how this could manifest itself, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I think I love, love that idea. I felt it to be really true myself. I won't go, go into it, but yeah. As I've thought about um, people who are in, in that situation of yeah, being the weak, the broken one, whether that's because of addiction or because of anything, like going into, into that like starts making you realize how, I don't know, just the the stigmatization that we have on that has to do with like our our deification of the strong hero and everything like that. And when we go into that state of being, and like you said, seeing it as an illness and not as like a character flaw, there's like really interesting movement I feel like we can make 
in terms of those people, like instead of having them suffer more, like there's so much with importance, wisdom, like in those wounds that those people are carrying. Yeah, I think there is a, there is a, um, like, you know, there is those extremes and in both extremes you can, you can, you can manifest something good out of it, you know, something like uh, enriched for yourself as an individual or for the community. It's just about how you, um, how you are like, uh, what is your position to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. There is, um, I, um, yeah, definitely a subject to to explore or to mm-hmm. like, um, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you, uh, like, and talking in this from this artist's perspective. Like, I guess I just don't talk to enough artists, but yeah, the exploration and the personal nature of the exploration is so powerful. So. Yeah, thank you for I appreciate teaching me about I that. Appreciate yeah, do you have I appreciate it. Do you have anything else to say about it, about any of your work or just about what you've been thinking thinking about the world today? I don't know. Um, before we say goodbye. You mean today in terms of this where we're anything the Yeah, anything. <laughs> Anything um, in the world? <laughs> I don't know. Um, think about it. Um, I mean, you know, like uh, in the situation we're right now, it kind of almost seems like you're in a movie, you know, or like a science fiction movie where um, yeah. you're just feeling this is just impossible. Like, this, how could that even happen? Like, like it's just strange, you know? Yeah. I was like a. Uh, you just see the certain streets and what's happening, but um, as you know, I would say that like I, I live through a um, situation like that where, where things are there's chaos, there is uh, uncertainty, there is sort of like fear of existence, and, and you don't know. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult, you just don't know what's happening tomorrow. You know? Yeah. Um, but I think that that uh, after that this passes, there is some sort of um, appreciation about um, about like that whatever the state afterwards is. Um, I tell you like a short story mm-hmm. if you have some time. It's yeah. a quick story about you know Fyodor Dostoevsky, the writer. Of course, um, it's a he has an interesting life story. You know, like um, uh, there is there is a time when he was like a very young writer, and um, he wasn't like that Dostoevsky that we know today, but uh, you know, he was like very kind of adventurous and wild, and he was in a group of people who wrote very, um, very liberally about uh, their, the current situation and against the Tsar at that time. You know, so what happened is they got imprisoned. They put they were put in prison, seven of them, and uh, no one they didn't knew what's what's the what's the sentence, and they were just for six seven months they were in prison, and um, the Tsar wanted to teach them a lesson, so. Uh, one day they delivered, they got the message that they're going to be executed. And um, he wrote a letter, and I encourage you to, to find it online. You can read that letter to his brother. There's two letters, one before. Mm-hmm. He, like one, basically, like he wrote it. They're both put together, but he wrote it when he got that message, when he knew he's going to be executed, he's not going to be there. He wrote, he thought of his brother, and he wrote it to him. So what happened is he, they, they got the message, and so a couple of days later, 
they got put the white shirts, they were put outside in the court, and they were they are about to be executed by a shooting squad. And so they're in line, and he talks about that moment, he writes it in this letter, and he's thinking, okay, in, in a minute or two, I won't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they are they're lined up with their with their uh, with the eyes closed, and uh, the the sergeant puts like the thing down like ready and you hear the guns like getting like loaded ready and just about before he puts it down he says the tsar spared your life so watch it what you're writing about and they are like released so out of the seven people few suicided right away they couldn't like another one person become mentally like he was like a nutcase at the uh -huh. end and Dostoevsky himself he developed um, epilepsy after that. Uh -huh. like he had like a really intense epileptic uh, seizures. And, um, but he became who we knew today in his writing after that. Mm -hmm. Like he, he was, you mentioned what it is like. He was like, you, you made this piece. If you even can make a piece that you won't exist anymore, and then you, you live again, right? So he saw why his characters are so unique and his writing is so unique because he saw, he was he was able to write from these two parts, two uh -huh. big dreams uh, in life. And he was able to write about with such detailed uh, certainty that it's just unique because I believe because of that, uh, because of that experience. So back to our thing today, what's happening, I think like, we're experiencing something such extreme right now. Um, not like that, but it's still for a lot of people is very extreme. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic, a lot of things. So I believe when we get out of it, I hope we will be some sort of like we will view the things in, in a different way than before. So it's it's uh -huh. very uh, it's quite it's it's actually a good thing, you know. In a way, it's, it's not a good thing that a lot of people die, a lot of people get sick. But we will our, after this, we will become we will become bigger. I hope. Yeah, that's yeah. an excellent story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll Thank check you. out the letter. Hey everyone, so that was the end of the main part of the interview. There's a section where we were talking before the main part of the interview that I'm going to add here at the end, but before I add that part, this is quite the long, long audio for you guys to listen to. Before I add that part, I'm going to read a letter by Dostoevsky. I hope it's the one that Brenislav was referring to, but if not, it's very wonderful in its own way. And the introduction to this page um, says of Dostoevsky that he was sentenced to four years hard labor in Siberia where he fell sick due to unbearable conditions and heavy labor, eventually resulting in being diagnosed with epilepsy. And he writes this letter to his brother from a labor camp. It says, Brother, my precious friend, I have not become gloomy or low-spirited. Life is everywhere. Life, life is in ourselves and not in what is outside us. To be among people and remain a man forever, not to despair nor to be downhearted. This is life. This is the task of life. This idea has entered deeply into my flesh and into my blood. Yes, it's true. The head which was creating and living with the highest life of art, which had realized and grown used to the highest needs of the spirit, that head has already been cut off from my shoulders. There remains the memory and the images created, but not yet incarnated. They will tear me, it is true. 
but there remains in me my heart and the, and the same flesh and blood which are still capable of loving and suffering, desiring and remembering, and this after all is life, on voit le soleil, which means um, like one sees the sun, we see the sun. My God, how many imaginations lived through, through by me, created by me anew, will be extinguished in my brain or will be spilled as poison in my blood. If I am not allowed to write, I will perish. Better 15 years of prison with a pen in my hands. Do not grieve for me, for the love of God. Do believe that I am not downhearted. Do remember that hope is still alive in me. In four years, there will be a mitigation of my fate. I will serve as a private, much better than being a prisoner. And remember that someday I will embrace you. I was today in the grip of death for three quarters of an hour. I have lived it through with that idea. I was at the last instant, and now I live again. If anyone has bad memories about me or bears a grudge against me, tell them to forgive and forget it. There is no resentment or spite in my soul. I wish I could embrace any one of my former friends with great fondness. When I look back at the past, I realize how much time has been wasted in vain, how much time has been lost in delusions and errors and ignorance of how to live, how I did not value time, how often I sinned against my heart and my spirit, and my heart starts bleeding. Life is a gift. Life is happiness. Every minute of my life might have been an age of happiness. I tear myself from everything that was dear. It is painful to leave it. It is painful to break oneself in two, to cut the heart in two. So I hope that inspires some Dostoevsky reading groups or something of the sort. But yeah, here's the, the first slash last part of the interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. I, I saw on your Instagram that like the part of your artist statement that talks about, I sometimes I look to the ways in which masochism transforms into fulfillment, an experience that someone dismisses only pain. I saw on your Instagram like some pictures of boxing, or do you do martial arts? Or yeah, yeah. Um, for that's like a been passion and sport that I've been doing for the last uh, twenty. Um, my mother signed me and my brother up when we were twelve, thirteen. 12, mm -hmm. I guess. I was 12, my brother was 10, and we started with boxing, kickboxing, and sort of moved our ways through those like different different um, mixed martial arts. Uh, eventually, I ended up doing the mixed MMA, basically, the mixed martial arts, and that's what I've been practicing. Obviously, now not anymore professionally, or I wanted to be professionally. I was doing some amateur stuff, but then obviously, you know, the, the, the life takes you different paths and you choose something else, but um, still um, training, still part of this sort of uh, scene and still in, like, very much in love with the sport. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure how to put it, but I also, I like feel a very natural connection between that kind of practice and sort of coming to terms with lots of like pain and subordination. I got into boxing just actually before the coronavirus hit. Like I just started for like a couple of weeks. I found a really good boxing gym and I just loved, yeah. I loved the sensation of it. And it, yeah, the, it's, it's just wonderful exercise. And I love the, the rooting through the feet and being able to focus here. I don't know. It reminds me, I played a lot of baseball when I grew up. It, it reminds me a lot of that same kind of like satisfaction you get right when you 
right when you hit something. And it's yeah. it's obviously like externally could be looked at, like the, the blood or the pain, <laughs> the pain of it as, um, I don't know, aggressive in some way. But I don't know. How have you connected that sort of practice in your internally to... Um, you know, I think like um, there is there is different, uh, and there you will have like different people. Um, of course, we're gonna like people gonna say um, some some of the sports, especially like MMA, for example. Like you see, this is way too violent, and and, and you will have people that are definitely um, against it, or even even just knowing that this exists or there is something. Um, but I think there is something essentially. Uh, in us, like I would say, collectively, and this you can like track back to like uh, the history. Like let's go back to like Roman gladiators, right? And then you see how we sort of like um, the evolution went, and like we had certain different kind of sports, and boxing came, and then slowly we we like went farther, and now we are back to this kind of really aggressive violence. Means that our satisfaction of seeing. Uh, there is something about the viewer who is going to see those fights in life, you know. And there is the difference between the person who is in the cage or in the ring, and there is a difference between the person who is watching it. And I found this very fascinating because um, there are only a few people who really can do this sport and, and be really f ready to go and like basically get hurt, get injured, or injure another person and be in risk with their life and their health. But then there is a whole bunch of group of people who like to watch that and we are excited about it. So then if you start to analyze this um, this uh, phenomena and you start to like put it on onto our, um, you know, start off from the media, uh, that when there is something negative or something violently happening in the world, just look how many uh, headlines are spilling and how we are uh, addicted to that, to see it, you know. Even if it's the most horrific uh, um, scene, you know, so like uh, take, take 9-11, you know, those pictures of people jumping off the building and, you know, but we're still, that was printed and we still bought it, we still watched it, we still read it, right? And um, you can trace that back in human, um, there is some, something like really weirdly that we cannot even understand, we cannot put it in words, you know, um, that we like to see violence, we like to witness it. Um, take, for instance, um, the, the innovation of photography and then the photography usage to um, be evidence of execution, right? You ask yourself, who is this for? Who is that picture for? And why is the picture taken before and after? Like, what's the point of it, right? But somehow we, 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 we like the government itself made that as something like a, like a craft that needs to be used. We need that part. We need that element to, to know this person or this set of people were executed, right? So there is something strange in us. And um, I sometimes do just for my for the sake of what, what, like my work and under the start of um, curiosity, I go to UFC fights and I just observe people around it. You know, I mm -hmm. do this sport myself, so I know exactly what it is like to be in the cage. But it's super interesting and, and um, to watch people uh, surrounded and like basically the audience and how they react to um, when they don't see for a really long time something brutally happen, how they like uh, put the pressure on the fighters to, to be more violent, to be this. And it's mm -hmm. almost this like hyperbolic masculinity in it and it's like, and everyone is addicted to it. It's just like a collective, it's like a massive thing. It really reminds you in some of the movies of the gladiators, it's like mm -hmm. it's really, people are thirsty for blood. And then when they walk out, it's almost as this peak of 
there is something, it's almost like they were on drugs, and then they walk out and they go back to their normal life. And they wouldn't put in words what just happened. You know, if you would say like, hey, I just watched you being almost uh, um, ecstatic by watching someone having their nose uh, torn apart or like mm -hmm. they're like, you know, fully bloody face on the floor and, and, and you were like screaming out of, of sheer excitement. Mm -hmm. And then they would say like, well, no, I, was, I just like the sport. You know, that it's, it's a strange thing. We detach from uh, accepting because in our society, those kind of norms and those kind of things are not accepted. No one will, uh, when we look at people like who have love guns or kinds of like war, right? We look at them as like, oh, like you know, because of you, we have those wars, and so people are afraid to 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 acknowledge that, or basically say like, uh, or some people don't even know. They would never tell of themselves like, I'm violent, or or I'm uh, prone to violence, or I am, I love to see violence. No one will admit that, you know. So in this kind of um, in this kind of sphere, I like to. I like to dig in into those kind of dark corners of the mind, or basically like look at it from my own perspective, right? As a child of war and, and my family, and, um, and looking into the countries where I'm from and how violence is so so vibrant and so uh, repetitive there. And then, of course, living in the West, living in America, well, which I see my home now, and um, just looking at these patterns and how, like, you know, how the the Western civilized war still has those uh, patterns in us. It's just differently expressed, you know. So yeah, so this kind of sport, um, back to your question, this this is definitely something that constantly is part of my way of thinking. It's part of my um, just like uh, way of life, you know. And as, as cheesy as it sounds, but it's um, I'm. I'm very not addicted, but I'm very passionate about this. I like, like it's it's part of my life. I like doing it. I like stepping into the cage. I like um, sparrings. I like um, you know. I like to train and try to be physically involved with with another person, and I'm just like see what it does to me physically, mentally, yeah. and then sort of translate that into my work.